Amen. Thank you, band. Excellent singing, church. My name is Travis Bond. I have the privilege of serving as senior pastor here. And now that we just sang a creed, I suppose it makes sense that we will flow right into um, uh, reviewing a couple pieces of theological vocabulary. I cannot think of a more exciting way to begin a sermon. And then we'll have a brief quiz afterwards. First word, uh, justification. If you're brand new to the Bible, justification is the single moment, um, the single point in your life whereby uh, the exercise of faith in God, God looks upon you and he declares you legally, or a fancy term is forensically righteous, that you stand, you know, we teach our kids, justified. It is just as if I never sinned. This is how God looks upon me. That's a moment in time. Justification. Second word, sanctification. Sanctification is not a moment in time. Sanctification is a process from the moment of justification unto our death, whereby gradually more and more we are conformed to the image of Christ. Okay? That's the two vocab words. Now you get the quiz. But it's multiple choice, so be not afraid. With reference to that second word, is sanctification... More like A, sitting in a car at the top of the hill, somebody just kind of gives you a little push when you're in neutral, and for the most part, you know, you you have to tap the brakes now and then or steer around obstacles, but really, conforming more and more to the image of Christ is kind of coasting downhill. Or B, is it more like uh, Sisyphus, if you know your Greek mythology, he was the king who was condemned for all eternity to push that boulder up the hill and then it would roll back down on him and then he would push it up again and it would roll back down on him? Or is sanctification, final option, like C, um, an artist going into a dark warehouse and discovering a painting there but it's, it's a disaster. Like, you know, it's been over the decades, it was faded by light, and now it's stored away, and the, the color's off, and the painting has been decayed over time. And the, the artist takes this out of the warehouse, and he takes it back to his very own home, and he gradually begins the restoration process, smoothing out the lines, and restoring the colors, and placing the painting even into a brand new frame. And over time, when when he's not actually doing the work on it, the whole time he's actually keeping it on display just the same. Such that people who come into this artist's home, they look at what's hanging on his mantle and they whisper among themselves, he does not have very good taste at all. But he keeps working on it. Month after month year after year, so that those who visit often, they might not even really perceive a change from one visit to the next. But those who go months or years without visiting this man's home, well, they'll look at the painting above the mantle and they'll wonder to themselves, is that even the same painting at all? So what do you think? Sanctification, A, B, or C? C. Good, excellent. As a general rule, when I spend five times the amount of time, (laughs) okay, Um, open up to 1 Timothy chapter 1, if you would. 
New Testament letter of 1 Timothy, uh, sanctification, this process of becoming Christ-like in thought, word, and deed, it is both God's work in us coupled with our work as well. We call this synergistic. I know I'm throwing a lot of um, like, uh, technical terms at you, but this is kind of significant, right? That, that, that sanctification is a cooperative or a synergistic work between God's grace in us and our working out of that grace. Um, it's really important work because ultimately, church, you will become what you behold, okay? You will become what you behold, what you set your goals on, what you set your gaze upon, like a, you know, if you're leafing through a magazine, maybe if this becomes kind of the pattern of your life, leafing through magazines and saying, ah, I wish I could be more like him. I wish I could look like her. And now that becomes the aim of your entire life. Well, in a similar way, I think we can say biblically, you will become whatever it is that you behold. So we're in this uh, six-part series through 1 Timothy. Uh, If you're brand new, so glad you're here. Welcome. Hope it's been a great Thanksgiving holiday, and and thank you for giving um, some of your weekend time to us this morning. Um, We're working through this series, which is kind of a a blueprint, 1 Timothy, on how we are to live as God's people in the community of grace. And um, we have this apostle, this older pastor, Paul. And he's writing, or he's exhorting in his letter, this younger pastor, Timothy, about how to live here in chapter four, both privately and publicly. Okay, that's what chapter four is about. Timothy, here's how you need to live privately, and you need to live publicly. And in case anyone is concerned that I'm going through puberty this morning, (laughs) it's just recovery from laryngitis, but we'll soldier on. All right, verse one. Hear now the very word of the Lord. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, 
which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Thus ends the reading of God's word. So if you want to take some notes, I broke it out into three sections, uh, verses 1 to 5, I titled Perversion, verses 6 through 10, I jotted down Private, and verses 7 through 11, I labeled Public. So Perversion, Private, Public. Um, Verses 1 to 5 then to begin are really just picking up, if you've been with us, um, on what Paul said way back in week one, in chapter one of this letter, that um, you get, we got this experienced Pastor Paul writing this young Pastor Timothy, in part exhorting him, Timothy, you're going to have to counter false teaching, okay? It's part of your job. In this case, the false teaching included an early form of Gnosticism, which was the screwy set of beliefs that included, among other things, the idea that uh, marriage is bad, child rearing is unspiritual, that some foods were spiritually unclean, and all of that, Paul says, Timothy, don't, don't be surprised by this stuff. Okay? Don't, let, don't let it put you in a tailspin, Timothy, or Christians in the 21st century by proxy. Don't be surprised by this. You've known all along, our Lord is very clear, that there will come into the church, in fact, there might arise from within the church, those who will pervert the truth. Their consciences have been seared and desensitized. That's what it says in verse 2. Don't trust them. Understand that half-truths, untruths, all of it, Ultimately, it's demonic in origin. That's where all lies come from. The problem is that false teachers rarely market themselves this way. They rarely will stand up and say, hello, my name is such and such. My conscience has been seared and I have silliness to share with you. It looks like smoke and it smells like sulfur and it's straight from the pit of hell. Most false teachers don't advertise that, which is why God gives the church pastors and elders to guard against this stuff. Presumably, godly, wise shepherds, grounded in the word, willing to guard the truth. Why is that so important? Because if we guard the truth, it'll save. If we distort the truth, it'll damn. If we guard the truth, it will save. If we distort the truth, it will damn. When we twist the gospel, it becomes something else entirely. And we've seen this played out down through the centuries, right? In our own day and age, it looks a few different ways. I think most commonly, and what I worry about for the rest of you and for myself the most, is a couple of specific things like prosperity theology, where we listen to these preachers who are very skilled and they wear designer jeans, so surely they must be trustworthy. And we listen to them proclaim that God's greatest aim for you is that you would be prosperous and comfortable and happy in whatever way you define happiness. That's prosperity theology. And I can tick off right now five or six that you you know them. Um, Another big one down through the ages is legalism. 
kind of going in the opposite direction here. This, this little bit of twisting of the gospel that says God's satisfaction and love for you is going to be established by your merit, by your earning, as it were, of his grace, by your following of his law in such a way that his, his love for you will increase or decrease how clean a life you've led. And so we find ourselves, when we imbibe this stuff on the treadmill of performance, and it takes us nowhere at all. Um, Dallas pastor Matt Chandler, he tells about this small group um, connecting with a really broken mom through, uh, I think it was a Christmas gifts for needy kids program. So they come into contact with this mom and they form a real relationship and it develops into a real friendship. And now folks in this small group are babysitting her kids so that she can attend Bible study and she's listening. And now even from time to time, she begins hosting Bible study in the apartment that she shares with her married boyfriend. But she's She's hearing this stuff and starting to be put together in her mind, this grace of God. And so now someone in the group um, finds this not too far away big Christian conference. And so the whole small group goes and one of the guest speakers there, he's speaking on sexual purity. And I guess it's like, you know, the worst kind of fear mongering that you can do from the pulpit. You guys have heard this kind of stuff, right? And the speaker, you know, he takes this rose and he talks about how, how beautiful it is. It's fresh and he smells it. And then he tells the audience to pass it around and everybody has to touch it and everybody has to smell it. And the grown-ups here will understand the illustration. And he just rages about STDs and the whole thing. While this young woman who is so thirsty for grace, right, would have, would have been willing to love anybody who loved her back. And she sits underneath this teaching for 40 or 50 minutes. And then at the end, the rose is brought back up and you know, it's, the stem's broken. Most of the petals have been ripped off and they're torn. And he holds it up and he says, look at this. Everybody's had their hands on this. Who would want this? And we think to ourselves, yeah, Jesus would. It's the whole point of the gospel. Jesus wants that. Jesus takes things and people that are broken and he makes them whole. And he takes messed up paintings, as it were, and he restores them to beauty. And Paul's writing to Timothy and he's saying, Timothy, you got to guard that gospel against all the different ways that it can be perverted. Don't don't let false teachers pervert the gospel of grace. And so you can see that it flows very naturally in light of all that, that we have to guard our own private lives first. It is the grace of God that saves us. It's also the grace of God that trains us That's verse seven. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, 
as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Physical training is not bad, but nor is it best. We need to care for our physical selves. We want to be diligent stewards of the bodies that God gave to us, but that pales in comparison to training for godliness. Why? Because the healthiest body in this room right now is not guaranteed to survive until tomorrow morning. But your soul will. You know, in an eternal perspective, I think we could say it's far more important where you're going than where you are. So pursue sanctification. Beginning with pastors and elders and then expanding out to the entire church, we have to guard both our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy. Doxy means doctrine or teaching. Praxy means practice or living. Ortho means like right or straight. You go to the orthodontist because you want straight teeth, right? And so um, at MCC, dependent on the Holy Spirit, we are pursuing lives of right doctrine together with right practice, which is not always easy. In fact, it's usually not easy, which is why Paul uses that analogy in verse 8 of hard, physical training. I think Timothy probably would have been very willing to sing with us the the lyrics we sang just a moment ago, O to grace how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now like a fetter Bind my wandering heart to thee, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Church, to establish in our lives orthodoxy and orthopraxy, we have to be willing to battle the temptations both without and within. And if we don't, then the gospel message which is good news, that's what it means, not advice. Gospel means news. This good news in the the ears of our friends and our family and our coworkers, if we don't guard our orthopraxy, our orthodoxy is only going to ring hollow and it can actually become downright harmful, inoculating people against Jesus. We give them just enough Jesus to be sure they never really get them at all. I mean, I got to tell you, you know, I, I try and plan these sermon series out months in advance, right? Based on, you know, where I think we are as a church, my sense of what we may need, what I think we might be facing down the line. But obviously, there's, there's absolutely no way um, that I can anticipate what's going to dominate the news cycle by the time we get to any specific chapter in the series. And yet it would seem that chapter 4 in 1 Timothy was tailor-made for the last month's worth of media. So please, do not ignore the lessons of Harvey Weinstein and Al Franken and Kevin Spacey, and Ben Affleck, and George H.W., and Louis C.K., and Charlie Rose, and Roy Moore, and Bill Cosby, before all of them. I recognize that those of us who are ages 35 and older spent the entire Clinton administration being told that the private and personal conduct of our authority figures did not matter all that much, but it was a lie then, and it's a lie today. Our personal and private lives give all of the power to the orthodoxy that we speak or don't speak. 
We're living right now, folks, at an inflection point. And if you're awake you, you, and you read the news and you pray through the newspaper, then, you, then you're, you're paying attention to this tremendous opportunity that right now in the month of November 2017, millions of people are beginning to awaken from their stupor and realize, son of a gun, and anything goes posture towards sexuality may not, in fact, ultimately bring joy. In fact, it, it could actually cause some real misery. That's all around us. That's your point of contact in conversation about the gospel. That's where you start. And you build out from there. And so if we're going to preach a lifestyle that is beautiful, as God defines beauty, well, we'd better be willing to guard our orthopraxy every bit as much as we guard our orthodoxy. In fact, I think I read somewhere, let those outside the church judge those outside the church. We will judge those inside the church. In other words, I'm far more concerned about the heart, mind, and soul of those of us in this room than I am at lobbing stones at the foolishness out there. Map it out over decades and the fact becomes obvious. You will become what you behold. We cannot long pass on to others what we are not nourished upon ourselves. We must live right so that we can teach right. Which is the last thing that Paul writes about here in chapter 4. We considered the perversion of the gospel and then the private application of the gospel and then we finish with the public teaching of the gospel. I'm at verse 11 if you kept your Bibles open. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth but set the believers an example. Verse 13. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, that by the way is the definition of preaching. If you want to know what is, what is this preaching I hear about, I see it. I'm not sure I could define it. That's the definition. We publicly read the scripture. We teach what it means. And the, we, we exhort its application. And we're done. Verse 15. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself, orthopraxy, and on the teaching, orthodoxy. If I can borrow a military term, um, uh, I think what we can refer to this final section as is standing orders. Uh, standing orders are um, orders to be retained regardless of changing conditions. And these were tall orders for a young man, which is why Timothy gets reminded there in verse 12. Don't let anyone look down on you, Timothy, because of your youth, Greek word naotis, but give them a public example to follow. Our best guess, if you, if you track the chronology back to Acts 16 when Timothy's first introduced, is that by the time he's getting this letter here, Timothy is somewhere between his late 20s and his mid-30s, probably early to mid-30s, um, which is why Paul says in verse 12, guard your speech, because there's peculiar temptations to a young man. And when it comes to public ministry, that all just kind of gets blown up a little bit. So he says, Timothy, guard your speech. Build up. Don't tear down. Seek to understand before you seek to be understood. We've got to guard our speech when we're young because conviction 
absence experience, it often comes across as harshness. And it's good when we understand that at a young age. Another challenge it says is conduct, also in verse 12. Because when we're young, you know, there's this, this great temptation to imagine that, that we can reach by one giant step where older men took many steps to go. And then we need to cut corners to do it. He says, Timothy, guard against that. Watch yourself. Instructions were first for Timothy, but they're for all of us. Guard your speech, it says. Guard your conduct. I'm still in verse 12. Guard your purity, it says. Obviously, this would be extremely relevant to a young man. You know, one of the, the best things about the old writers, the reason you should always read an old book in between the new books, is because the old writers, they had such an ability to say what needs to be said without being graphic. For instance, Charles Bridges, early 19th century, quote, tender, well-regulated domestic affection is the best defense against the vagrant desires of unlawful passion. That's exactly right. And it's elegantly put. So husbands or wives, when you arrive home from a long business trip, put the kids to bed, light the candles, and then tell your spouse that I've really been looking forward to some tender, (laughs) well-regulated, domestic affection. (laughs) And men, she will just swoon before you. (laughs) And also men, and women, realize that the very anticipation of that is used by God to battle temptation and to guard your purity. So verse 15, it makes it clear um, that you and I, we got to quote, practice these things. Um, Same phrase, if you notice, is also used in verse 11. These things. It's also used in verse 6. These things. And the truth is, it's really easy for us to wax eloquent about these things without ever really living these things. And so it's like, you know, if someone asks you over coffee in Fellowship Hall, hey, I've heard it's really good. How do I get to Blue Moon, Bagels, and Medfield? And you'll pause for a moment and you'll say, oh, I, I think you just take a left onto 109 and you just, you just keep on going. There's a similar idea here in chapter 4. What Paul is calling us to is a long obedience in the same direction. Because extrapolated out over a lifetime, you will become what you behold, what you set your gaze upon in one form or another. You will become what you behold. So behold Christ. Invite Christ like the master artist to soften you and restore you and make you bear the image you were created to. Why? Because of that very last verse. Keep a close watch on yourself, orthopraxy, and on the teaching, orthodoxy. 
persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You know, Samuel Rutherford, a few of you will know that name. Kind of a big deal, but a long time ago, theologian. Pastored in a Scottish village called Ainweth on um, uh, coastal waters called the Solway. And uh, Rutherford, he had a friend, a very close friend named Cousins. Cousins was married to a woman named Margaret. And after Rutherford died, Margaret gathered up all of his diary and his, his writings. And she wrote, you know, compiled it all into a lengthy book and then also wrote a really, really long hymn that's probably never been sung in its entirety. It was really just a poem. It captures the, the heart and the ministry of, of Rutherford's life. And then the last stanza of that poem goes like this. Oh, Anwith, which was the town, on the Solway, which was the water, to me thou still art dear. Even from the edge of heaven I shed for thee a tear. And if one soul from Anwith meets me at God's right hand, then my heaven shall be two heavens in Emmanuel's land. Next week begins Advent and the Christmas season. Perhaps opportunities for you to teach the gospel. Most certainly opportunities for us to live the gospel. So practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my shame.